Can you guys hear me okay? Awesome. So good to see you. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. It's a, it's a, is it a big day? It's a big day, right? So I had quiche. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling full. And it's really, it really is truly amazing to be a part of this community where there's so many awesome dads who are pouring out their lives for their kids and just to be able to be alongside you and then to have so many amazing dads who have gone before us and have paved the way. Uh, Such a privilege to do it together. So bless you dads. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to jump right in um, to a... uh, one of Jesus' most profound teachings that he gives in the entire ministry of his life. And we're going to be beginning in verse 38. Here we go. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it was, it was said, love your, en- your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you, Jesus, for your word, and that you did not leave us to figure out life on our own, but that you gave us the scriptures, you gave us the Holy Spirit, who would guide us into all truth. And so, Holy Spirit, just come. Come and rest on us as we open your word together. Come and speak this morning. Come and uh, calm anxious hearts. Come and calm uh, racing minds. Come and stir up apathetic emotions. And we ask, Lord, that you would just fill us up in your name. Amen. The nation of Mozambique actually has a very violent history. Uh, Back in 1977, there was a horrific civil war that took place. And for 15 years, Mozambicans hacked each other to pieces. It was a war that anthropologists refer to as the worst in contemporary times. During the conflict of this 15-year span, over a million people in that one nation were murdered, and half of those who were murdered were children. It was vicious. People were raped, abused, tortured, blinded, dismembered, starved, enslaved, and exiled. Parents were slaughtered in front of their children, and children were boiled before their parents. It was a modern horror. And when the war ended in 1992, that was when we really needed to begin the work of healing, There was an entire nation that had just suffered extreme PTSD. It was a collective trauma. And there was another problem that worked against their ability to be able to heal from the trauma, which is this question, what do you do with all of the weapons that are buried in caches across the nation? 
All of these weapons kept the threat of violence in the air and therefore kept people on edge and unable to heal from their trauma. So the government of Mozambique adopted a Christian-backed and Christian-authored program that was called Swords into Plowshares. Citizens of Mozambique could turn in a weapon in exchange for a tool. They could turn in a rifle for a shovel, a machine gun for a plow. In fact, there is one story of a village who turned over an entire cache of weapons in exchange for a tractor. And then what happened to all of these weapons? What did they do with them? They were turned into symbols of peace. And so this picture here is a piece of art called the Tree of Life, a sculpture that is made up of decommissioned weapons. And this picture is meant to be an image of the way that God brings redemption out of the evil in the world. And so this morning, as we're opening this text in Matthew chapter 5, and we're examining Jesus' words about violence, about retaliation, about retribution, I think that this image really helps us to capture what it is that Jesus is pointing us towards as we consider the redemption of the world and the kingdom of God. So we're gonna work through this line by line. Um, Sorry, that was a really heavy intro to a sermon. (laughs) Happy Father's Day. Um, look Look at it with me. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this right here is a command that appears more than once in the Old Testament scriptures. In Exodus 21, we read, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It's pretty extreme. Burn for a burn? That's in the Bible. Whoever takes, uh, in Leviticus, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, he has done, as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person will be given to him. And then the most succinct version of this is in Deuteronomy 19. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's in, the, that's in the Bible. That's the law that was given to God's people at the very beginning. Now, this, this set of commands here is about commensurable punishment, that punishments are, are to be equal to the crime. This was a common law in ancient cultures uh, known as the law of retribution, And the impact of these laws is clear, that justice necessitates retribution. Without retribution, we do not have justice. And so notice these three words in Deuteronomy 19, show no pity. It would be unjust for a crime to go unpunished. And as barbaric as this law might seem to our modern sensibility, the code of justice is actually meant to curb violence by limiting the amount of retribution you could take on somebody for harming you. We don't, because in our humanity, in our flesh, who we are is sort of like a core level. We don't want to just get even. We want to inflict even more damage than we received. If a person hits you, your natural response is to respond in kind. And if we're honest, we usually want to injure the person a little bit more than how badly we were injured. Now, the most obvious example of this is with children. I am a, (laughs) Bethany's laughing, she gets it. She's got three boys. Um, 
I have three children, and uh, and uh, a six-year-old, an almost four-year-old, and an 18-month-old. And anyone who has lived with small children understands this law clearly. My sweet baby girl, my little darling Maggie, 18 months old, when something is taken from her by one of her brothers, she will respond immediately, not simply by taking the toy back or trying to get it back so that she can play for it, play with it peacefully, but then she comes at them with a calculated attack involving pinching and hair pulling, and then looks up at dad with a smile on her face as her brother is screaming. <laughs> Maybe pray for us. That's my, that, that's my blood, like right there on display. You see, violence spins into more violence. It escalates and then it feeds on itself. And so the heart behind this command is to ensure that justice is done and that that, that justice, that punishment, is limited to fitting the crime. And so it included capital punishment, life for life, and corporal punishment, tooth for tooth. And this, in the ancient world, was actually considered to be progressive. This was a way of limiting the spread of violence to only being commensurable. And yet Jesus steps onto the scene and moves his followers way beyond what the Old Testament law required. Instead of the requirement of retribution, Jesus reveals that love and grace and forgiveness are even more powerful to break the cycle of violence and to create this alternative society, what he calls the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, what we've been reading for the past few months, is Jesus' clear description of what life in his kingdom is meant to look like. It's more than just a personal ethic. It is intended to reconfigure us collectively into God's new community, a visibly different kingdom in this world. It is meant to cause the world around us to scratch their heads and wonder at this peculiar and bizarre way of life that these people are living. And so when we come to these texts, we should expect these teachings to jar our thinking and to challenge our desires and to contradict what we consider to be normal and everyday. And if we are of the world, if we share the world's value system, then the words of Jesus will seem to us at times even impractical, crazy. So, so far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been taking us through different case studies of what his kingdom is meant to look like and, and sort of how the Torah teaches us how we live in the world and how his interpretation of the Torah takes us way deeper than mere behavior all the way to the heart level. And in each of the previous examples that we've read so far, Jesus shows us a command that takes us more into what his kingdom, his kingdom is meant to fully look like. But in this passage, Jesus takes an old command in the Torah and he actually sets it aside. The law that was concerned with the requirements of equal retribution is fully done away with by Jesus and reshaped to order his followers towards a new, more complete ethic, the ethic of mercy. Jesus' followers were meant to embody his kingdom, a perfection we were meant to, to embody something that was so much higher than the way that the rest of the world works. They are to be a city on a hill. They live to show that mercy indeed triumphs over judgment. So look again with me at verse 38. He says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
Now, this is a really strange and challenging command. Do not, res- do not resist the one who is evil. And it's actually a pretty unhelpful translation of the text. This translation kind of makes it sound like Jesus is saying that his followers should shy away from injustice or lie down or give up or just be powerless or shrug their shoulders and try to go on with their lives in the face of injustice. But New Testament theologian N.T. Wright translates this as, don't use violence to resist evil. Another translation says, don't retaliate revengefully by evil means. And this command is more than just to not use violence to resist. It carries an opposite and positive obligation. We could, you could look at this text and just as easily translate it as, be ready for an act of grace. It is not so much that Jesus' followers are to avoid conflict with evil. Like, we are not called to just hide and shy away from evil altogether. No, it's that his followers are called to engage in conflict using a different form of power. Jesus calls us to face evil with love, even loving those who dish out injustice in the world. And so the person that is shaped by Jesus' by Jesus' commands and teachings, responds to injustice not with vengeance or retaliation, but with grace, with compassion, with overwhelming mercy in such a way that it has the power to undo evil and actually reverse injustice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object. No resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. Evil cannot undo evil. Only grace can break the pattern of violence and evil. And the grace that undoes evil is an active grace. It is an act of power, not weakness. Only grace and mercy are powerful enough to destroy violence and evil. And so Jesus, he goes on from this this text here, saying, do not resist the evil one, to give us four examples of how to live out his vision of what Scott McKnight calls non-resistance. And in each of these examples, Jesus does not advocate for passivity, where you just simply back away, shrug your shoulders, and, and disengage, but rather a way of active and powerful grace. And as Jesus lays out for us all of these different examples... He himself is going to show us in his own life what this looks like. He is the perfect example of what self-sacrificial enemy love enacted looks like. Jesus put his trust in God as the one who would avenge him. And through his suffering on the cross, evil was ultimately overcome. And as his followers, we are called to follow in his example. In 1 Peter 2, we read this. For to this you have been called. Because Christ, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed." 
as Christians, we follow Jesus in his suffering. In the same way that Jesus overcomes by laying down his rights and his life, so the kingdom of God is advanced through the creative and self-sacrificial love of his people. So we're going to take a look at all four of Jesus' examples, okay? With me? Verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. The first example that Jesus gives us is about physical violence and insult. Jesus talks about being slapped on the right cheek. Now, the only way that you can be slapped on the right cheek by a right-handed person is with a backhanded slap. And so this backhanded slap is meant to actually make the person receiving the slap not only feel hurt and injured, but insulted and belittled. It It is an expression not only of anger, but of power. It is a gross insult to the dignity of a person. So when someone attacks you and insults you and belittles you, what do you do? Now, there are two options that we would normally go with, right? The first one is to flee. You take the slap, you back down, you back away, you apologize. You know, uh, maybe you're still seething in anger or shame, but you just kind of just disengage. You want this to be over as quickly as possible. The, sec- the second option, obviously, is to fight back, to one-up the offender, to defend your honor. But Jesus calls us to a third way, a way that neither backs down nor retaliates. It isn't stripped of its power, nor does it seek to overpower. Jesus says that when someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn your left cheek as well. It is an act of power. It is an act of defiance against evil, but it's an act of defiance against evil while preserving the humanity of the offender. And so in doing this, you are looking at this person as an equal. You are saying, you cannot belittle me. You cannot take my power from me. I I hold these chips. And if the other person wants to hit you again, this time they have to one-up and actually punch you as an equal. And so in doing this, you maintain your dignity. And maybe they don't punch you. Maybe your courageous act actually exposes the evil and brings some change in their hearts. See, violence doesn't just degrade the person who is the victim. It degrades the assailant as well. And so when you meet violence with mercy, you are holding up a mirror to your enemy so that they can see for themselves what they look like in their act. Jesus doesn't just command this to his followers, but he actually goes on to model it for us. We read that on the day that he was crucified, Jesus was beaten over and over and over again. And how did he respond when he was struck? Did he respond with an equal measure of violence? Did he respond by hiding and shrinking back? We read that Jesus responded with silent dignity, turning the other cheek. Example number two, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, Let him have your cloak as well. And so this example is really all about the legal and justice system. In this hypothetical situation, you are in court with your adversary, and they are looking to sue literally the shirt off your back. And so in first century Israel, uh, uh, an an Israelite male would have two garments that they wore all the time. The first uh, was an outer cloak, Um, And then there was an inner shirt or tunic. Now, the outer cloak was more than just sort of like a nice jacket to wear to cover up, uh, you know, your undershirt. Uh, It was actually meant to, it was something that was useful for your sleeping blanket. Um, It it preserved you in cold, cold times and at night. And so there was actually a law 
in Exodus 22 that forbade you from being able to sue somebody for their cloak. It says, if, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So losing your shirt, that's not a big deal. Losing your cloak, that is your livelihood. And so here you are in court with your adversary, and the first option as they are suing you is flight, to lose in court, to pay up, to give them the the tunic that you're wearing, and to walk away defeated. The second option is to fight, to lawyer up, to build a case, countersue, try to take them for all that they're worth as well. But again, Jesus calls us to a third way. He says, surrender your cloak as well. Overcome their injustice and greed with sacrificial generosity. When you feel powerless and like you're being taken advantage of, literally being stripped of your dignity, you can be the most powerful person in the room by responding with love. And so to give your cloak, this is embarrassing. It's literally stripping completely naked in the courtroom. It is forcing your adversary to see you as an equal, as a human being, and again, holding up to them a mirror of the inhumanity of their own action. Maybe this will lead to repentance. Maybe it will showcase a totally different kingdom. And again, Jesus doesn't merely command this from a distance, but he demonstrates it in his own life. On the day when Jesus is crucified, we read that Jesus is stripped. He is robbed. He is crucified naked on a cross for the sake of the world. Which brings us to number three. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Go the extra mile. It's like an expression that we use all the time, like on a poster, you know, for getting good grades or something like that. Uh, It means something very different in the context that Jesus is saying it in. Roman soldiers had the legal right to compel occupied people into forced labor. And this authority afforded them the right to demand that you carry all of their equipment, their backpack and all of their supplies, up to one mile, no questions asked. We see this uh, example on Good Friday when Simon of Cyrene is compelled to carry the cross for Jesus by a Roman guard. And so remember that these Roman oppressors, they are the enemy. So imagine being a first century Jew. You've got a busy day. You do not have time. It is hot outside, and you see some Roman soldiers who are coming your way, and you know that this is not going to go well. In fact, you're going the opposite direction as them. And as they're coming up to them, they demand that you turn around, you carry all of their gear, and you go one mile in the wrong direction. And then once you finish that one mile, you turn around and have to walk that one mile back just to get back to your day. So option one, flight. Maybe you try to get away from them, you hide or something like that, or you, know, you just deal with it, you're angry, you're seething, you do the bare minimum. <laughs> Maybe you start dragging their stuff behind you over rocks and stuff to get even with them a little bit. You let the bitterness in your heart grow as you walk. Or option two is to fight back, to resist, to refuse. Maybe you're beaten for it, but hey, your dignity is intact, you fought back. Again, Jesus commands his people to a third way. He says, instead, carry the load beyond what is compulsory. Don't, when, when you finish that first mile, go another mile with the soldier. This goes against all of the violence that the zealots of his day uh, were using to fight against Roman guards. It subverts the power of the empire. So imagine walking with a soldier who is used to being despised by those who are compelled 
compelled to walk with them. And instead of gritting your teeth, walking in anger, when you come to the end of that first mile, you say, I've got a little bit of time. I can carry it another mile. It looks like we're getting pretty close to where we're trying to get. We're not far from the fortress. I'll take it the rest of the way. I mean, that's powerful. I love the way that New Testament theologian Glenn Stassen imagines this in his commentary on Matthew. He says, if we combine Jesus' teaching on the second mile with his teaching on going to the brother to make peace, we can imagine that his disciples who would carry a Roman soldier's pack two miles would also engage in conversation on the way, seeking to make peace. Roman soldiers might learn how Jews felt about the occupation, and Jews might learn how Roman soldiers felt about occupying a resentful population. A Jew might ask about the Roman soldier's family and how it felt to be living far away from home in Italy. We can imagine a Roman centurion asking why the Jew is carrying his pack a second mile. We can imagine the Jew explaining Jesus' way of discipleship and peacemaking and how Jesus was healing not only the hatred against Romans, but also the blind, the lepers, and the paralyzed. We can imagine the centurion going to Jesus and begging him to heal his own child, telling Jesus that he had faith in him and Jesus commending him for his faith. We can also imagine a centurion later seeing how Jesus died on the cross, saying, this must be the Son of God. The truth is that it's tough to follow Jesus while clinging to our rights, our honor, and our reputation. The call to every disciple is not to resist, fight back, and cling to power and dignity. The call to every disciple is come and die. This kingdom, this kingdom of God stuff is not for the faint of heart. And this is not weakness. This is what Jesus calls true power. How are you guys doing? Still with me? The final example that Jesus gives is about giving. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, in this passage here, we don't really have context for what is the nature of the giving that Jesus is commanding his disciples towards. But it should be informed by Jesus's words here that do not resist the one who is evil. In some way, he is linking sort of the generosity he is calling his people to, to the fact that there's probably an evil person who is behind it. Jesus prods us to consider how we can sacrificially love other people regardless of whether or not we think that they are worthy of it. I don't believe that Jesus then says, therefore, give everything you have to any person who is in front of you because perhaps that gift might not actually serve well the person who is begging. For you to give abundantly to somebody who will only harm themselves with it is not a responsible and loving thing to do. Instead, Jesus calls us to simply be always leaning towards sacrifice in our care for others, even to the one who seems unworthy in front of us. This is about confronting systems of injustice directly, even at our own expense. And this is the way forward for the people of God. This is Jesus, again, on the day of his death, being, hanging between two thieves and looking over at them and extending grace mercy and forgiveness, even at their darkest moment, execution for the guilt of their crimes. And then Jesus goes on beyond this in verse 43. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so following up on these, these verses that Jesus is saying to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to, to, to give away the cloak in addition, to, to give to the one who begs, Jesus is calling us beyond just doing the right thing begrudgingly as an act of obedience. It's one thing to do that. It is another thing altogether to let the way of Jesus get all the way into your heart. It is not enough to merely resist responding to violence with violence. Jesus calls us to his most radical ethic, enemy love. He says, I know the scripture calls you to love your neighbor, and that's good but I am also calling you to love your enemy, even the one who persecutes you. Because when you do that, you look like your father who does the same for you. And then he ends that passage by saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now when he says be perfect, he is not referring to sort of sinless moral perfection where we no longer have any sin in our lives or in our hearts or anything like that. I don't believe that that's possible on this side of, of the resurrection. What he is instead saying, this word perfect, is a word that refers to maturity or completeness. He's saying, let the way of Jesus, let the words of the Sermon on the Mount take residence in you in such a way that you, that you don't just do the right thing, you become the kind of person who can love even your enemy. Now in our time, we are constantly being made to hate other people. Like the most powerful emotion that can be weaponized in our world today is contempt, hatred, and anger. And the flames of anger are being stirred up around us all of the time. Our news sources, social media, they want us to be afraid and to feel threatened by those people. And each one of us in this room probably has a different algorithm pointing us to who those specific people are for you. They are going to destroy our country. They want to brainwash your children. They have an agenda. They want to oppress you. And what's radical in the words of Jesus is that he calls his followers to actively love not just other Christians around you, but to actively love the they in that situation. Whoever those people are that come to your mind when I made that list, Jesus says, love them and pray for them. Today uh, is June 19th. It's a great day, right? Father's Day. Uh, it's my father-in-law David's birthday. Happy birthday, David. <laughs> and um, it's a federal holiday. Today is June 19th. It's uh, known as Juneteenth. It was enacted into law just one year ago. Um, and Juneteenth, if you don't know, is a celebration of the emancipation of slaves in America. Well, I mean, what a, an amazing moment for us as a country to be able to celebrate the freeing of all of the slaves in America. Now, historically, Juneteenth was, was celebrated primarily by the church. We were the ones who owned it back in the 19th century. But then for one reason or another, 
the celebration of Juneteenth died away uh, for more than a century in our country. I never heard of that holiday growing up until about a year or two ago. Now, the ending of slavery is an unambiguously good thing to celebrate, is it not? And yet, over the last year, it has inflamed culture wars. It has been weaponized as a wedge issue to divide people. The recognition of this holiday, I mean, the, the, the reason probably is that it was pushed by a polarizing group or two in our country, and therefore people distrust it because it was pushed by this group that you may not trust. When it come, which, is, which is just silly. It just shows again how a good thing that we are invited to celebrate can be a polarizing thing because we are being made to hate one another. Now, when it comes to nonviolent resistance and enemy love, I think that one of the great American heroes that has really embodied this is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The civil rights movement was marked by a refusal to fight violence with violence. But for Dr. King and, and his followers, it wasn't enough to merely surrender their bodies to suffering and justice. They aimed even higher than that. Their stated aim was to love those who were hurting them as they were hurting them. And Dr. King famously wrote these words. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your, your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. That is powerful. That is powerful. And when you consider the context that those words were spoken in, it is unimaginable for most of us to consider being threatened, not only our, us being threatened, but our children being threatened, for generations being threatened, and to say, even as you come into our community to hunt us down, we will resist you with our capacity to suffer and to love. This is defiant love. This is a way of resisting the perpetuation and the expansion of evil. The only way to overcome violence, extortion, manipulation, objectification, and persecution is through defiant love. The unwillingness to respond in kind, but instead to respond with grace. Now, in preparing this message this week, I have really struggled with the application with what do we do with these words in our lives. What is clear from the text to me is that Jesus calls his followers to fight against evil with creative, nonviolent means that lead to redemption 
rather than the perpetuating of violence and evil in the world today. Can I read that for you one more time? What is clear is that Jesus calls his followers to fight against evil with creative, nonviolent means that lead to redemption rather than perpetuating violence and evil in the world. For the first 400 years of Christianity, the, the early church universally practiced pacifism or nonviolence. And I am convinced that the kingdom of God does not advance through warfare, that true and lasting peace, what we call shalom, is not advanced through weapons or force, but rather through sacrificial love. And I do not say that flippantly or lightly. Even in saying these words out, out loud, I recognize that there are probably lots of feelings in the room, tons of opinions who are right here. And the last thing that I want to do is create controversy that divides us. I get that the world is complicated and that violence is a very difficult issue and, and that uh, there's a lot of nuance in these conversations. So I don't mean to be heard sort of categorically like that. But let's just set aside for now sort of all of the culture wars around warfare and guns and police and everything else. Like let's just set all that aside right now. Let's just focus in on what this means for us today. Chances are that on your way home today, you will not be conscripted to fight in a war. You will likely not be robbed at gunpoint. You probably won't encounter a home invader, and I doubt a soldier will ask you to carry their pack for a full mile. The examples of Jesus' teachings aren't meant to be for us uh, a means of understanding narrow commands for rare moments. Jesus, it's not Jesus saying, in this specific situation, this is how I want you to respond. These are actually examples of the kind of creativity with which we are called to confront everyday evil in our lives. It is about seeing people and situations through a kingdom lens. And so I think that this message from Jesus would call us to ponder together as a community how we can collectively learn the, the, the uh, muscle memory of consistently letting go of our rights, our reputation, our honor, our comfort, even our very lives in order to be salt and light in our world. The way of Jesus that is outlined in the Sermon on the Mount does not guarantee success, safety, or honor. In fact, it probably signals the opposite. Consider the man that we follow, though. He perfectly demonstrated love and grace and forgiveness and was ultimately executed by the state. Um, over the last couple of years, as we've been sort of forced into this reckoning as a culture around issues of race and justice and things like that, no doubt many or most of us have been spending some time reading or being forced to read on social media the opinions of other people. And um, in in this time, I've been spending quite a bit of time reading, uh, the, reading and listening to the sermons of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, um, and recently I was reading a sermon from him and I thought to myself, wow, I cannot believe that he said that. How in the world did he get away with such boldness? And then I remembered, he didn't. I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pacifist and theologian and pastor in Germany during World War II. His conviction to be a city on a hill, to follow the way of love, it cost him his life. You see, in Revelation chapter 12, the very end of the Bible, we have this verse in verse 11 that describes the beautiful and the victorious church. But this is how the church gets the victory. It says, and they, over, or, and they conquered him, or they overcame 
by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We overcome as we follow our Savior Jesus into death. We don't overcome by overpowering. We don't overcome through protectionism. We don't overcome through rallying around political candidates or anything else like that. We overcome by one way, sacrificial love. And as we follow the way of our Savior and teacher, Jesus, we, we become more and more and more like him. Each of us here this morning are the direct beneficiaries of Jesus demonstrating ultimate enemy love. In Romans 5, we read this. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath, wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. My friends, the issue of Jesus' radical teaching in Matthew chapter five is not a secondary teaching. It is not an additional nice thought that points us towards a kingdom ethic. It is at the very heart of the gospel that you and I have believed. That Jesus, in saving us from our sins, loved his enemies. And he calls us to bear that in our own bodies, in our own emotions, in our own lives, every single day. This is the gospel that we have received. And this is the gospel that transforms us so that we can be like Jesus. Amen?